innovation is hard. Commercialising innovation is even harder. How do you go about developing or manufacturing something to take a concept and a wonderful idea and make it a commercially viable and sophisticated product? Issues like market opportunity and design and engineering, digital capability, they're all areas to address that if it's not done correctly, they can make or break a successful launch of a product. That's what we're talking about on the show today. My guest is Sam Lanyon from Planet Innovation. We're going to cover the landscapes of advanced manufacturing and digital health in Australia, especially in light of COVID-19, and the work that Planet Innovation's sister company, Lumos Diagnostics, is doing in the area of of point-of-care diagnostics. All right, Team Health Tech, let's make it happen. Welcome to Talking Health Tech with Peter Birch, a podcast featuring conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. With me today is Sam Lanyon. He's the co-CEO and co-founder of Planet Innovation. He's an innovative and strategic business leader with significant experience in strategy, sales and operations with a successful track record in the global commercialization of technology-rich products. In addition to his role at PI, Sam is Executive Chair of Lumos Diagnostics and a non-executive director of Paragon Funds Management. Sam holds an honours degree in medical engineering from the University of Melbourne, a postgraduate diploma in management from Melbourne Business School and strategy training from London Business School. Hey Sam, how are you going? Peter, I'm really good. Epic. Thanks for having me on. Yes, thanks for coming along. Looking forward to talking around the making it happen side of things when it comes to innovation and everything that happens at Planet Innovation and also Lumos too. So mm-hmm. great to get stuck into it. Let's learn about you firstly, Sam. Tell us a little bit more about what you do. Well, as you said at the intro, I'm the co-CEO and one of the founders of Planet Innovation. So obviously get involved in all parts of our business and been in health tech, medical devices and in diagnostics probably for about 25 years. And I've also been in technology products as well and both on the R&D side and the commercialization side. And I really liked your intro at the start talking about, you know, it's hard. <laughs> it's hard to commercialize products <laughs> and get into market. And, yeah. you know, I've been there and I've been there multiple times and I'm not quite sure if I've got the secret sauce, but let's see if we can pass on some stuff that might actually help. Yeah, that's what it's all about though, isn't it? There's no silver bullet, but there's people that have walked the path beforehand and hopefully can bring others along. So, love to learn a bit more about Planet Innovation. So, you know, what is it? Who's it for and what problem does it solve? So, you know, your elevator pitch or your 25 words or less is that we're a health tech innovation (laughs) commercialization company, which means that, you know, we can design and build, do design and build health tech products and businesses. And those are all targeting trying to make clinical outcomes or, you know, the patient experience better, people healthier across the globe. So that's sort of the premise of the company. And, And I guess, you know, in order to do that, you need to be able to conceive of design manufacture, commercialize really advanced, highly regulated med products. And, and those products typically go into sort of hospitals and, and clinics and labs, you know, in various countries around the world. So yeah, it's been an awesome 11 years, you know, and we started with four of us and we now got sort of roughly north of 300 people, both across Australia and the US, and they're all involved in the R&D and C of health tech primarily. Yeah, got it. And for those that are unfamiliar with how that all fits in, there's companies that are creating solutions and they're solving big problems. And then you've got incubators and you've got consultants and you've got all these other kind of people helping it happen. Like, is there a name for what you guys are? Well, our marketing team should get onto it and brand it. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but when you talk about what problem are we trying to solve, you know, as a company, which is sort of where you're going and why we actually got up out of bed in the morning, you know, sort of 11 years ago and decided to start PI, 
you've got to go back in the history and go through some of the cuts and throws of product development and you know been at this for a very long time and you can see a lot of challenges along the way and you see a lot of failures and those failures can be quite heartbreaking even if you haven't lived them yourself because often you come across really great ideas and really interesting business models and you know great passionate people but sometimes they fall over because of you know a lack of competency or capability or they just haven't been funded appropriately and funnily enough there's actually a lack of mentors and partners and collaborators too especially in australia that have actually experienced this and can actually help some of these companies. And so I guess the problem we tried to solve was around the ecosystem. You know, can we build a, a business that actually helps shepherd innovations through from the early stages of conception, development, early stages of commercialization, get them ready for the big wide world? So plant innovation is by its very nature a safe environment to do some of these things. Get build scale infrastructure and borrow that for each of our ventures and then take these products and they can go raise their money at the right time for them. So that's probably the primary reason why we existed. And then I guess the second problem that we address by doing that is all around funding. Like I'm sure you have interviewees from time to time, especially some of the ones that are in the early days of getting their business started. And, you know, getting risk funding is actually really hard. And so we decided that build a profitable business first, prove that we could actually build a successful business first, attract the investors, and then expose them to new opportunities along the way. And then they start to back some of the companies that we've created over the time. Yeah, excellent. I would love to learn a bit more about the places that you're playing into, like the industry. So there's advanced medical manufacturing. Like that, that was an area that was called out as a focus area of the federal budget this year. Why is that so important to the country? Yeah, I guess so. When you go back on when that was all announced, there's probably two lenses to that. I think in the there's a tactical lens and a sort of strategic lens. I think you know I'm trying to go back in my grey matter to because 2020 was such a stressful year. We can sort of, <laughs> let, let, let's yeah, let's not. Let's not. <laughs> I'm going to get therapy after this session, right, Pete? Because I've, I'm going back into a place that I want to go. It's a dark place. Um, <laughs> no, but if you think about the tactical response, I think there was a fear around supply chain resilience, access to PPE, access to diagnostic products. You know, how can we keep our population safe and all that sort of stuff and that. That's probably a pretty obvious sort of first reason why advanced manufacturing was seen as important. But then you sort of roll forward to the budget itself and, you know, some of the, the more meaningful initiatives have been put together by the federal government and each of the states have actually come up with their own. And I guess the rationale there was that advanced manufacturing creates advanced jobs and, you know, creates a, a more resilient and, I guess, diversified economy. And if you go into medtech specifically and you look at advanced manufacturing in medtech, then you look at who you're competing against. Like you're competing with the likes of the US, you know, you're competing with the likes of Europe. But we're not talking about cuts and throws of low-cost regions and having to fight for price. And so I think that's a much more strategic and much more sensible approach, I think. And and, um, and that's the reason why they're doing it, because they're trying to create the jobs of the future. And the question is, can we, right? And I think that as planning innovation, one of the things that we've done, you know, if you don't mind me saying, we've done a fair bit of heavy lifting, right, to show that you can do it. And um, we've managed to attract a whole bunch of really big global players to our shores, and they've entrusted us with their intellectual property and productizing their ideas, taking their products to market and helping them do that. And we've had a whole bunch of early stage startups that are really well funded, once again, out of the US and out of Europe, that are also coming to engage with us here. And so why can't we? I mean, that's the that's the big question. And so I think I'm really supportive of what both the federal and state governments are doing. Amazing. And then looking on the other side of things, looking at around, say, digital health, that's obviously an area of rapid growth accelerated by COVID. Um, yeah. Everyone's got a view on how much will is just a temporary fix to get us through COVID in terms of adoption of digital health solutions versus what's going to hang around. Do you have a view on what the lasting changes are due to COVID-19 in regards to digital health? Yeah, yeah, I do. And it's not necessarily just because of COVID. I think COVID has absolutely accelerated the situation you know, in spades, really. So digital transformation has been going on across all industries. It seems to be getting to healthcare 
a little bit late. It's a bit late to the party, right? And I think that's probably a lot to do with, you know, regulations and safety, you know, putting a little bit of an anchor on some of these things. And if you think back a little while ago, you know, the first wave of digital health technologies have been around for quite some time, right? If you think about telemedicine outside of Australia, it's, it, it started in the US, you know, 10, 15 years ago and virtual care and all of those sort of things. And that first wave really has been sort of pulled into the limelight in, as part of COVID here in Australia. But overseas, a lot of those companies just did a lot more of what they were already doing and some really sophisticated virtual care models that are actually being done. And I think what it does do, though, is that the next wave was also coming through, like, you know, the really highly specialised applications or the digital therapeutics and all of those sort of things. And investors were already getting behind those. And I think what's happened because of COVID is it's actually brought that sort of early adopter sort of view of digital health into the majority, you know, the broader majority. And so there's actually a bunch of investors piling in. So if you look at some recent data that came out of Rock Health, they were talking about, you know, 2020 being a record year for investment in digital health, you know, 9.4 billion in the US alone went into digital health businesses, right, up from 7.4 billion. So I think it's gone from what seemingly in Australia looks like a niche play or an early adopter play to something much more sort of mainstream. So I think it's, yeah. it's going to hang around. The investors are there, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's always an interesting one too, looking at how Australia invests in innovation and digital health compared to other parts of the world. And you, know, you seem to be suggesting that there's, it's starting to see a bit of movement there when it comes to Australia specifically and investors getting behind in those early stages. Yeah, well, Australia is an interesting situation. And one of the reasons, not all of the reasons, but one of the reasons we've been reasonably safe here in COVID is we're on an island and, and I don't want to begrudge the good work that all of our governments and healthcare workers have done. But I think also it takes a long time sometimes to adopt things in certain areas. And sometimes it actually, you know, we tend to adopt things faster. And I think in the case of digital health, the investors are still probably about to think about that wave that's already happening in other places around the world. They'll start to consider that. And I think, you know, telemedicine right now with some of the changes that the federal government have done, looking to be much more lasting now and actually being anchored in, you'll probably start to see some investor money coming in. Actually, you're already starting to see it. There's some listed telemedicine medicine companies that have done very well towards the back end of 2020. And I, and I just hope more of it happens. Yeah, no, that's very much like a milestone event that will give confidence to a lot more investors come through. I agree. Mm -hmm. One thing that is hard though in healthcare, as you know, is disruption and innovation because innovation by its definition means changing something and disrupting it. So why is it hard in healthcare in your opinion? Well, it's hard for good reason. You know, no, <laughs> we all engage with the health system because we want to be kept safe and we, well, we want to get well. But most importantly, if we go there, we don't want to be subject to experimentation. Right? Yeah. It's, you know, quality and safety is sort of paramount. And, um, and so I think, you know, just the very nature of disruption, it doesn't gel very well with the concept. Technology innovation happens so rapidly outside of healthcare, but it tends to happen obviously much slower here. And, you know, clinicians are not, not um, risk takers. And I think there's this other piece about healthcare too, which it took me a while to get this myself, you know, through personal experience that you might take a product to market and you might validate that product, whether it be for regulatory purposes or just for commercial purposes in market, and you'll have your clinicians use it. They'll demonstrate clinical impact. They'll demonstrate health economic impact or what have you. And then you go to a country just next door, right? Where we're not talking about Australia, but you know, it could be in Europe and you've got to do it all again. And the rationale is we've got a different health system. We've got different methodologies. You need to prove it in my hands. And look, the good news is I think when you do, uh, I guess, come to terms with that fact, you do realize it's a barrier too, right? So from a business's perspective, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing either. People would love things to happen faster, but you know, net, net, I'd, I'd rather have what we've got. Now, the good news is, is that digital health is starting to show some really great impact. And so it's not really hard for some of the more adjacent technologies to actually borrow off the success of others. And then hopefully we start to see that really take off as a category. I want to talk more a bit more about Lumos Diagnostics and the relationship with PI. That sounds really interesting. Tell us a little bit more about Lumos Diagnostics. 
Yeah, well, as I mentioned right back at the start, that we've got this model where we've got this profitable services business and we look to build businesses and get them sort of standing on their own two feet and then they go off and run their own direction. And, and Lumos Diagnostics is one of our first businesses coming to market. And the reason why we invested in it is because we can sort of see the connection between rapid diagnostics, point of care diagnostics, point of need diagnostics, however you want to call it, and digital health type applications. And and for us, what we could see is, you know, being able to do a test really close to wherever the patient lives or where they go to a pharmacy or where they go to school or go to work, we could actually see some really great opportunities there. So we started to invest in that business back in 2015, 2016. And then through the course of getting to know people in that network, we came across a company called RPS that actually had a really novel product called Febridex. And they've got a bacterial viral rapid diagnostic test that allows clinicians or pharmacists or even yourself to decide that if you're feeling unwell and you've got a sore throat or fever or what have you, this will tell you whether you've got a bacterial infection and therefore you should get antibiotics or you've got a viral infection and you should stay away from others and potentially go through some confirmatory tests you know, such as flu or COVID or what have you. And so that's what Loomis is all about. It's about bringing this new sort of paradigm of care and it's a really great first-line test for us because what's happened is it's been demonstrated in spades during the pandemic. You know, um, It's been adopted in some of the countries where it's got regulatory approval. It's been adopted as a triage tool for managing patients as they come through emergency department, putting him into an isolation or telling them to go home. Just to go back one, for those that don't know much about point of care diagnostics, I mean, it sounds obviously super useful and interesting. How does that actually work? How do you do the test when someone like at the point of care and then find out whether it's a bacterial or viral infection? Yeah. Okay. So maybe I'll just go to brass tacks, which is what is point of care. We know chronic disease like diabetes, you have a glucose test and, and these days it's you know commonplace to do it yourself at home. You know, you've got people that might have blood thinners, drugs where they're going to make sure that their clotting agents are at an appropriate level. So they'll do a, once again, what's called a PTINR test. And then you've got pregnancy tests, right? That's like the ultimate consumer rapid diagnostic. So that sort of gives you an idea of it. And what it's basically saying is I'm doing the test away from a central lab where the way that the test is run and who runs it is being trained and certified and all that sort of stuff. So we're playing outside of that space and you know the, the i guess the mental leap for us as lumos was to understand that you know often when someone comes to see a doctor yeah they might have that that that, that idea that they, they just want antibiotics they just want someone to do something right and so what you see around the world is actually a massive global crisis around um, antimicrobial resistant pathogens and issues with antibiotic overuse and so the mental leap for us was to try and come up with a test that actually helps someone differentiate and decide absolutely is this antibiotic going to work Right, this person's sick. They don't. They've got all the usual things: sore throat, fever, blah blah blah. They do need an antibiotic because they've got a bacterial infection. Now, the interesting thing is, is that it also differentiates a viral infection, and we all know the importance of that right now because you're a risk to the people that you live with, you're a risk to the people you work with, and you could potentially be sending your kids off to school and infecting the school. Now, obviously, what's happening in the pandemic is we're all hyper aware of that problem, but it's been a problem that's been around for a long time, and it will come again. What a useful tool. And just thinking around the business side of it for a tick and just the status quo, are the labs cool with point of care diagnostics? Is it seen as something that would pull business away from the traditional kind of going, getting a test on somewhere else? Or is it a nice addition to the ecosystem? Ah, now that's a really interesting question, Pete. And it's different by country. I think if you look, and maybe if I end with Australia, right? So if you look at the US, you know, they've had a stated aim objective to diversify patient management you know away from a centralized service so they do that through their reimbursement system so in the us they encourage point of care devices you know the use of those through that mechanism right by paying people to run them and they're really heavy adopters of that and so i think when the pandemic hit i'm sorry I keep referring back to this pandemic but it's such a, a cathartic it was, it was a big thing i think we're going to talk about it for a while <laughs> 
think that it's demonstrated the need for sometimes having a much more distributed sort of system, right? Because the last thing you want is everyone turning up to one place. So the US well ahead of everyone else. And I think if you look into Europe, everyone's fundamentally got the idea that the process that you go through is a triage process. The clinical process is a triage process. You see your GP, then you go see your specialist, and sometimes you need to you know, go see, uh, get some very specialised care. And so in the case of Australia, we've been a little bit lucky in that once again being an island, but once again having a concentrated population. And so I think where we're at right now is the pathology service has done an amazing job, as well as the healthcare workers, to keep us all safe. That said, I do think that there is opportunity for us to adopt a much more distributed sort of point of care system. Now, the good news for us is that this is a new product in a new category, right? So we're sort of sitting in front. We're not cannibalizing anyone. And we do know there is a problem because over-dispensing of antibiotics, is, it is an Australian problem as much as it is anywhere else. And so we will go about trying to fix that. And I think um, it's a really good you know, sort of point of the spear, I guess, um, to show the utility of point of care and what it can do. Yeah, a good space to operate in and a good one to solve. Moving on to, say, just advice for those that are playing in the scene, probably at an earlier stage, and obviously you've had experience in different stages of running a health business and health technology industry, raising capital. You've helped in multiple occasions for both Planet Innovation and other ventures as well. What's your advice to those that are looking to do the same raising capital within the healthcare or technology arenas? Yeah, it's a question we do get asked quite a bit. And look, whilst I have raised money over time and, and our companies raise money over time and, and our ventures have too, it's not always easy. The good news is it, does, it can get easier. And I think it's reasonable to assume that, you know, if you've raised money and made money for others, then obviously it makes it easier. But the first time is hard. You know, if I could give some advice and we, we at Planet Innovation see a lot of companies that have got a lot of ideas and a lot of, I guess, business plans that they're trying to enact. So I guess we get exposed to a lot of entrepreneurs and people that are looking to try and disrupt various markets around the world. Sometimes they don't have real problems they're solving. It's a perceived problem or, or the problem that they're solving, there might be the savings they're making are virtual dollars. They're not real dollars necessarily. And so have a real problem that you're going to solve, then, you know, obviously you've got to create evidence to show that you can actually solve it. And that evidence often could be across not just the clinical outcomes, but also the health economic outcomes and what have you. And you, you really do need to go deep there and to understand, you know, how you're going to save people money or how you're going to make people money and then how resilient it's going to be. So you've got to do a lot of work on that. And hopefully, once you've done all that depth and all that work and you've actually turned over every single rock, you can then coalesce around a really simple story. Because no matter what you do, your narrative and the way you position it and your passion and everything has to come through too. And the last thing you want to do is bog investors down with a huge amount of detail because you've got to get them engaged and thinking about, you know, the potential of what you could do with their money. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, and I do recognize what I've just said is ubiquitous advice that you would hear from most advisors here. But the other thing I would say too, with the caveat that I know that this is not always the case, that you can actually have this luxury, but... Picking your investors is is such an important thing that I wish I had been able to tell myself, you know, 10 years ago. You need to surround yourself with people that not only get your story and they love your passion and all that stuff, like I said before, but they also have to be practically minded. They have to be patient. They have to know how long it takes to be an overnight success. I always say that. And, you know, the last thing you want to have is to feel like you've got to overpromise and underdeliver because it'll kill you. Yeah. Once you're on that treadmill, it's not good. Yeah, go. Next question. No, I was going to say, no, just to build build on that too, it's almost like a vicious cycle where you feel like to raise capital, you've got to set these high expectations to get the money so that you can do what you already know is probably not possible and then just apologize profusely and hopefully maintain a relationship with an investor. That's a bad place to be in, I guess. Oh, it is a bad place to be. And I think also, look, it does happen. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. <laughs> I guess I am actually. <laughs> but 
if I think back on my career, I'm really glad that I had 15 years learning my craft in a really safe environment, which was quite entrepreneurial, like the pre-planned innovation worked at a company was very similar to PI in terms of its business model. And, and then you get into PI and then it took us sort of five to six years to get us to the point where, you know, we could point to evidence, right, and show that we could actually, you know, create a really good business that was actually going to clearly create a return for investors. And I guess the issue sometimes is that sometimes you might be ready. If you are coming out and you're actually having to maybe push it a bit too much in terms of your story and your narrative and what have you, maybe you do need to spend more time in the market trying to understand it a bit better. Maybe, and you know, whether you do that as a, as a salaried employee in the market segment you're going into or whether you do that using your, your mum and dad's cash or whatever it is, sometimes it's better to wait because if you know more, you've got a better pitch and you've got a better position, you've got a better narrative. So timing is everything, right? But experience is everything too. No, I love it. That's really good advice that people can act on too. And just to start to wind things out then, Sam, Planet Innovation, what have you guys got on the horizon? What's going to be the focus for you in 2021 and, and beyond, I guess? Wow. So we keep motoring and um, you know the company's growing. And if you go back to our original thesis, we wanted to be an important cog in the ecosystem here. And I think if you look just at plant innovation, we're going through ridiculous growth, right? And we're creating a, uh, an environment where, like I said before, if you need to learn your craft somewhere, this is a place where you can learn it. You can come in here, you can work with a whole bunch of inspirational people, knowledgeable people, experienced people, but also really great companies that we're working with. Um, and so we'll continue growing that. We'll continue growing our, our manufacturing. We'll keep bringing in that advanced manufacturing that you know, Australia desperately needs. We'll keep bringing it to our shores and we'll also hopefully cultivate a bunch of local Aussie um, businesses too as they start to take on you know, global challenges. So we'll be doing that at PI. You know, we'll be building out a digital offering, et cetera. And, and then on the ventures side, we're in some pretty crazy times right now. You know, Lumos and Mo and, uh, and our other ventures sort of, you know, spreading their wings. And we've also got Vices Therapeutics, which I'll probably come back and talk to you about some other time as well. And we'll help those guys get capitalized and get the right investors around on their registers. And, and hopefully they keep growing at the rate they are just over the last couple of years. Amazing. I'll put some details of those ventures that you're working on as well as Planet Innovation, of course, so people can check out what you're doing and get in touch. And lastly, if there's any organizations that are, you know, startup scale-ups and looking at expanding and think that maybe there's a fit to work with Planet Innovation, what should they do? Should they get in touch somehow through the website? They should just get in touch with planetinnovation.com.au and or go via our website, of course. And look, we're always happy to share our advice. Even if we don't work together, I'm always happy to meet entrepreneurs, always happy to meet with businesses regardless of what level of maturity they are. So we're just passionate about making commercial success happen. So get in touch. Amazing. Check it out, guys. Well, thank you, Sam, so much for your time. Appreciate you taking us through the journey and also looking forward to hearing about what's happening with all the other ventures as well. Thanks so much. Thanks, Pete. for listening to the show check out talkinghealthtech.com to connect with other people in our community and to learn more about the australian health tech industry also make sure you hit subscribe on your favorite podcast player so you don't miss an episode and share this episode with a few people who need to hear it now go make it happen 